morning, thank you for making that early call time a reality. It is a precious thing that we do when we worship together and we confess our dependence upon God, our need for Him, our joy in Him. Um, and, and as we've sung this morning, there was a, obviously a theme of God's goodness. And we know from uh, what David writes in Psalm 23 where he says that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. And that is such a joyous thing for us to consider and to meditate on, on the goodness and the mercy of God. And so let's continue to do that before we open God's word together. Let's again pray and let's confess our dependence on God, our need for him to move and to work in our hearts and in our minds that we would be moved to greater expressions of love and joy and confidence in him and in love for one another. So let's pray and then we will open God's word. Heavenly Father, again, we confess our dependence upon you. Oh, how we need you. Every moment of every day we need you. Um, God, help us to see that, to realize that more. We pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119 where he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. God, please open our eyes, open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to you, to receive the truth of your word. Lord, grow us in our love for you and our love for one another. May we overflow with praise and thanksgiving to you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you remember, uh, last week we kind of uh, started the book of Joshua, and I say kind of in quotation marks because we spent much of our time considering last week how the book of Joshua gels, how it fits, how it connects with the rest of Scripture, with God's big, glorious story of what He is doing in in restoring and in making all things new. And, And it's important that we always remember how the individual part fits into that greater big whole. It's important how we see how Joshua serves to advance God's story of redemption and salvation. It's important that we remember that that the book of Joshua, it teaches us and it instructs us first and foremost about God. It instructs us about God. It teaches us about God. This is, this is a book that reveals God's work and God's plan in the lives of His people. This is God's rescue mission. This is God's purpose to save and redeem a people for Himself to the praise of His glory. And so last week as we kind of zoomed out and saw the big picture message of the Bible, we, we noted this. If you want to jot it down on your outline again, that may be a good thing. So it, takes hold in our memory banks, but one way we could summarize the entire message of the Bible is this, that through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. And so again, this helps us, brothers and sisters, and how we need this. This helps us to lift our eyes, to lift our gaze, to see more clearly the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the rest the salvation that only God can give. And so last week, in, in trying to tie this all together, we also looked at a four-part outline that helps us think about the book of Joshua 
as a whole. The first part of, of the book of Joshua is this. It's preparing the nation. Preparing the nation. And we see this in chapters 1 through 5. Here God desires to prepare his people before they go into battle. God desires to prepare his people before they would claim the inheritance that he would give to them. Uh, it, it's good for us to be reminded that God is never interested in just the end result, in just the bottom line, in just getting results. If that's all that God wanted, he could do that very easily on his own without involving anybody at all. But God is so much more interested than just the bottom line. He wants to move and to work in Joshua's heart and mind. He wants to move and work in Moses' heart and mind and in the lives of the people. And nothing has changed. Today, God is not just interested in getting you from point A to point B. He is interested in the journey and the process along the way that he would grow us to, con- to the conformity of Christ-likeness. And so there needs to be preparation. And we'll see that in chapters 1 to 5. And then part 2 is defeating the enemy. We'll see this in chapters 6 to 12. These are exciting chapters. These are gripping accounts that we read as Israel learns to fight, to walk by faith, to avoid deception, and to trust that God is enough, that God will fight for them and that he will rescue them. And then part three is claiming the inheritance. We see this in chapters 13 to 21. In these chapters, we'll see that Israel would need to learn that God himself is the ultimate reward. God himself is the ultimate inheritance, that his presence and his life, it is the true blessing. And in this, they would learn to persevere. They would learn to continue to walk by faith. And these are lessons that we need to learn as well. And then lastly, in part four, uh, in chapters 22 to 24, we see Israel renewing the covenant. And Joshua would help them in that, to do that, to remember and to review all that God had done. Done for them, how good that God had been to them. They would be challenged to celebrate and to commit themselves to now walking faithfully with God. And again, brothers and sisters, these are chapters that we need for our lives as we consider what it means to know God and to remember His grace and to walk daily with Him. Now, for this morning, before we launch into Joshua chapter 1, ah, and I hope even as I say that, that you're not horribly disappointed. Because I promise we will get to Joshua chapter 1 verse 1. But it won't be this morning. It, it'll, it'll, it'll be next week. And so what we want to do this morning is we are going to look at the life of Joshua prior to Joshua chapter 1. We want to look at the work that God did in Joshua's life to prepare him. That led him to this moment that he would help bring the people of God into the promised land. So if you have a Bible, don't turn to the book of Joshua. That's for next week. Turn to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And then we'll also turn over to Exodus 17, Exodus 24. And then we're going to go back to Numbers chapter 14 and it will be well worth the journey. Now as you uh, turn to Numbers 13, I want to remind you just one more time what our, what our purpose and goal is this morning. See, as we look at the life of Joshua, please hear me out. We are not trying to engage in just an interesting human interest story. 
Okay, this is not cheesy daytime television where it's like, hey, come and learn about the amazing life of Joshua and see uh, how he became Israel's one of Israel's greatest leaders and find out how you can be great, too. No, no. By looking at the life of Joshua, we don't intend to learn just about Joshua, although that the part of it, that's a small part of it. We want to know God. We want to see God, how he moved and worked in Joshua's life and how he is moving and working in our lives as well. Please note this on your outline. The purpose of our study is not to learn about Joshua or the nation of Israel, but about God. Now, again, to be sure we benefit from Joshua's example, we benefit from seeing how God moved and worked in his life and in the nation of Israel. But as we look into the pages of Scripture, we want to know God. We want to grow in our love and trust for him. Dale Ralph Davis, who's written a wonderful commentary on the book of Joshua, writes this in in the introduction. He said, as you read and study Joshua, try to keep asking yourself the question, what is the writer preaching about when he tells me this story? He is not telling you the story only to inform you, although that is part of it. He has a message to proclaim, a God to press upon you. And that is well said. The book of Joshua, as we read about Joshua's life, is preaching to us about God. The writer desires that we know God, not merely Joshua. And so with that understanding, again this morning, we want to see how God prepared Joshua for leadership. How God worked in his life before he was known as the leader that he was. Before he was known as Joshua the general. And again, we'll see along the way that I think God would have us learn many of the same lessons that he had to teach to Joshua. So firstly is this. Number one, if you're taking notes, before he was Joshua the general, he wasn't Joshua at all. His name was Hosea. His name was Hosea. It's interesting to know that Joshua's name, it wasn't always Joshua. Joshua was the name that Moses gave to him, but it certainly seems from the text that his birth name was Hosea. And we know this because of Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers 13, we read the name of the 12 spies who were sent into the land of Canaan to spy out the land and to then report back. And we read this. If you're in Numbers 13, look at verse 8. It says, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. So there's, there's Hosea. He is one of the 12 spies, but now jump down to verse 16, and we read this. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hosea, the son of Joshua, uh, sorry, the son of Nun, Joshua. So here, Moses, he, he renames Hosea, to Joshua. He gives him a new name. He calls him Joshua. So why would Moses do that? Why would Moses rename uh, a perfectly good name, Hosea, change that now to Joshua? Was this just something that Moses liked to do? Give little nicknames to people? Which, by the way, some of you have that spiritual gift. Uh, some of you are, are very good at coming up with, with nicknames and with other names. Guys, especially, seem to be very gifted and, and, and good at this. Uh, Olivia, uh, your husband, uh, Matt, um, he is, he is, um, he has, that may be his greatest spiritual gift. And so I, I've noticed, and I hope I'm not divulging any secrets here this morning, John Hardacre. Matt, he, I hope you know this, he doesn't call you John Hardacre. He, he calls you Johnny Hearts. 
which is the coolest nickname ever. Johnny Hearts. If I had that as the nickname, that's what it would say on my door in my office and, and on my... That's a cool nickname. Um, I recently learned that someone in, in the small group that Anna and I are, are a part of, they earned a nickname in, in college, Rain Delay. That was their nickname in college because they were always late. That is cool. That's another cool nickname, Rain Delay. I like that. I, that is cool. Um, he, he's not in here right now because he's serving in twos and threes, but Pastor Stephen, we don't call Pastor Stephen Pastor Stephen in the office. You know what we call him? We call him Schultz. We call him Schultz uh, uh, because it's fun to say and because there's an E at the end of his name. I feel like that's what his ancestors intended. And so we, 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 we call him Schultz. And my good friend, my good friend, Mike Wolf, I don't call him Mike Wolf. I call him my thorn in the flesh uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons. So, you know, nicknames can be a lot of fun. But is that what's happening here? Is that is is Moses just like, hey, Hosea, no, 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 Joshua, we're gonna, is, is that what it is? Moses just casually throwing around it? Not at all. What we what we see here is actually very beautiful and it is very significant. Please note this on your outline. While the name Hosea simply means salvation, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Oh. Now, Hosea, that's a good name. But Joshua is a better one. And Moses, and I would say God as well, for God continued to use this name and to call Joshua, Joshua, wanted him to have this name to better articulate the means and the source of salvation. Hosea, salvation. Okay, salvation from where? Salvation from who? Salvation to what? Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. Now I know. Now, Matt, it's so good to have you here this morning. You, you, you just missed it. Oh man. You'll have to go back and catch the tape. But Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. Now I know the source and the means and the goal and the end to salvation. Listen, every time we hear the name Joshua, we should think of Psalm 121. Psalm 121, which says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? The name Joshua answers the question. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Joshua is a great name. And every time we say it, we should be reminded that the Lord, Yahweh, He is our salvation, our hope, our help, our life. It, it all comes from Him. So before He was Joshua the general, He wasn't Joshua at all. His name was Hosea. Number two on your outline. Before He was Joshua the general, He was a slave in Egypt and most likely the firstborn in His family. 
I think we often forget this little fact about Joshua's life, but Joshua would have been born into slavery. He grew up as a slave. He grew up as the son of slaves, making bricks with the Egyptians ruling over them. And in addition to this, as near as we can tell from Scripture, from from the biblical records, it appears that Joshua was the firstborn in his family. Then I hear that and say, well, why is that significant? Why does it matter that Joshua would have been the firstborn in his family? Well, remember this. Remember the final plague that God brought against the land of Egypt. It was the death of the firstborn. God struck down the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. But the Israelites, the nation of Israel, they were to take the blood of the lamb and they were to paint it and to put it on their doorpost that the angel, the destroyer might pass over and that the firstborn in that house might be saved. Joshua's life as the firstborn living in Egypt was spared because of the blood of the lamb. In addition to this, by being a slave in Egypt, Joshua had seen God, the true God, the only God, humiliate the gods of the Egyptians. Joshua had seen the powerful working of God and the plagues that God had brought upon Egypt time and time again. He had seen God prove that he was the true and the living God. Joshua would have been one of those who had walked through the Red Sea on dry land, seen that glorious miracle as God parted the sea. And he would have seen as well God destroy the army of the Egyptians as the waters returned and 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 return to their normal place, destroying the army that was pursuing them. So I think it's fair to say that Joshua has a unique perspective on the powerful, saving, gracious work of God. And to some degree, if you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again and made a new creation in Christ, then you can in many ways identify with Joshua's story. You can identify with having life and freedom because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God that was shed for you. You can identify with having life and freedom because of the gracious work of God. In John chapter 8, Jesus was talking with some Jews who were trying to understand Him. We're trying to understand what his life and ministry and teaching were, were, were all about. And we read this in John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What do you mean, Jesus? Free? We are free. We're, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. I mean, they, they knew that song. They, they sang that. They could identify with, with that song. Slavery? What are you talking about? We are free. Look at, look at what Jesus goes on to say to them in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
Jesus says to them, you are mistaken. You're mistaken. You are not free. You need to be set free. You are actually enslaved to sin and you don't even know it. You are proud of your heritage. You are so arrogant regarding your family tree. You take great confidence in your in your works and in your righteousness. And you are enslaved to so many sins and to so many desires. And you're, you're not even aware of it. You need to be set free by the Son and only He can do it. And brothers and sisters, let us be reminded this morning that every one of us In our natural selves, we are born into sin. We are born enslaved to sin. We are naturally enslaved to sin. We love to think that we're free when we're following our sinful desires, when we are engaging and doing just whatever we want to do, but we are deceived. We are deceived. We are enslaved to sin and and we don't even know it. Did you know that right now there are literally thousands of people that are stuck on a cruise ship? The, the, the diamond princess because of the coronavirus. The coronavirus is, 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 is on the ship. There are literally thousands of people right now who are imprisoned on a cruise ship. Does that strike you as odd? Imprisoned on a cruise ship. I've never said those words. They sound weird just, just coming out of, of my mouth. Listen, the people who are on that cruise ship, they paid good money to be on that cruise ship. They, they desired and longed to be on that cruise ship and now they are imprisoned on that cruise ship. Their pleasure has become their prison and that's how it always is with sin. Oh, we think it'll, it'll bring us such joy and delight. We think that it will complete us and it becomes our prison. And we're not even aware that it's happened. So Jesus' point is, we need Him. We need the Son to set us free. We need the Lamb of God to take away our sin and to make us free. And if you are in Christ, then that is your story. That Christ has saved you. That He has redeemed you. That He has rescued you from life, from the dead. That you are free to walk in newness of life. That you are free to walk in love. Loving God and loving others. No longer having to be consumed with self. So I ask you this morning, have you recognized the bondage that sin brings? And have you found freedom in Christ? Rob Blair, before you were a child of God, you were a slave to sin. That is your story. If you are in Christ, that is all of our stories. Before I was a free child of God, I was a dead man walking. And that's it. Those are the only two options that are before us. And so you can and should be able to identify with Joshua's life, born into slavery, set free by the blood of the Lamb, led to walk now in newness of life and freedom because of what God has done for you. Paul wrote in, in Galatians 5, and we, we, we read earlier from Galatians 5, a different part of Galatians 5. Paul begins that chapter saying this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm 
and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says, don't trade your freedom for anything. You've been set free in Christ. Stand firm in it. Don't go back to sin. You've been set free from sin. You're free to walk in love and in obedience unto God. You've been set free to use your freedom to love others, to encourage others, to strengthen others so that they too would find joy and life. In Christ. Just a few verses later, Paul would say in Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we are called out of slavery. We are called into freedom. A freedom that looks like love. That looks like walking in love, in joyful celebration unto God for all that he has done. So before he was Joshua the general, he was Joshua the slave. And you, before you were free in Christ, before you were a new creation in Christ, you were dead in sin. You were a slave to sin. But the Son has set you free. The Son has set you free. Next, number three, before he was Joshua the general, he was a soldier who knew how to take, follow, and obey orders. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. But here we learn something important about leadership. We learn, we learn something important about what it takes to be a good and a godly leader. If you want to be a good leader, you must first learn to be a great follower. You must learn humility. You must learn submission to God before you can lead with any kind of credibility. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that the people of God are not well served by rude, arrogant, unsubmissive people. And it is interesting that to see that before he was Joshua the general, before he led the people into the promised land, he was an obedient soldier. One who knew how to listen to the authority that God had placed over him and to take instructions and then to act upon upon those instructions. If you're in Exodus 17, look at verses 8 through 16. We read this. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here we see that Joshua did as he was commanded. He was obedient. 
He was submissive. It seems that Joshua knew and understand that God was and is ultimately in control, that God was and is sovereign. And so he was willing to follow orders and to place himself in a position of submission. Now, why is this important for for us? What what was it that Joshua and, and us needed to take away and to learn from this situation? And what was the deal with Moses' hands? Why was it that when his hands were raised, the, uh, the children of Israel would win, and when his hands were lowered, they would, they would start to lose? What is the point of all of this? What are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to take away? I think it's this. Joshua needed to learn from this encounter that it is always God who gives the victory. It is always God who gives the victory. See, entering the promised land, defeating the enemy, would not hinge on Joshua's brilliance. It would not hinge on Joshua's ability to create some kind of battle strategy or some kind of war plan. No, victory would rest on God. And Moses' hands here, I believe they are raised in prayer and in dependence upon God, symbolically showing that it is God who will win the war. It is God who will rescue his people. It is God who will deliver and show grace. It is God who will fight for us. The nation of Israel needed to know this and to learn this and we need to know this. We need to learn this. Please note this on your outline. Dependence upon God expressed in prayer, faith and trust is the backbone of any successful life in ministry. It is. It is the backbone of any successful life in ministry. And yet, and yet, confession time, I have not, I have not seemed to learn this lesson very well. I have not, I have not, you would not be impressed if you could look into my daily life and to, and to observe how well I demonstrate this, this dependence upon God. Listen, I wake up in the morning and my, and my first thought is, I gotta, I gotta seize the day. I got things to do. Carpe, what is it? Carpe diem, carpe, Carpal tunnel, so whatever it is. All right, I gotta, I gotta seize the day. I gotta do stuff. I got, I got places to go. I got, I got people to see. I don't have time to pray. I don't need to pray. I, right now, I have a to-do list sitting on my desk. It is there. Right? I got things to do. Or, I, I don't have time to be de- dependent upon God. I don't have time to pray. I, I I gotta go hand out some discipline to my kids. Have you seen my kids? I gotta, I gotta fix them. And I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go fix them. Or, I don't have the time to pray about how to love and lead my wife. Have you seen my wife? I'm just kidding. That's, no, uh-uh. But sometimes we think, I'm gonna go fix her, just like I'm gonna fix the kids and my to-do list, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go seize the day. I'm good to go. No. No, I'm not good to go. I must express dependence upon God. I must seek His face and shame on me when I start my day with this kind of an arrogant attitude instead of recognizing what God would teach Moses and what He would continue to teach Moses throughout their entrance into the promised land that is dependence upon Him. That God brings the victory. That God accomplishes His will through people who are seeking His face. 
And what was it that Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested? He said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. It was Jesus again who said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's, it's just what Rob said earlier. It's not about, well, I can't do anything. Sure, I can do stuff. Look at me, I'm doing stuff. I'm juggling, I'm going to work, I'm driving my car. No, you can do nothing of spiritual significance without abiding in Christ and seeking him. And so it was as a humble, obedient, submissive soldier that Joshua would begin to learn this lesson of dependence upon God. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we can learn this lesson as well. Next, number four, noted on your outline, before he was Joshua the general, he was servant to Moses and witness to the glory of God. Oh, this is so good. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then verses 9 through 18. See, this is so interesting. Before uh, he was Joshua the general, we see that he was Joshua the servant. He was a servant long before he was a leader. Just like David was a shepherd boy long before he was king. Just like Samuel was serving in the temple, working under Eli long before he ever became the great prophet who who led the nation of Israel. Just as God took Moses and made him a shepherd away from his people for 40 years before God would use Moses and bring him back to Egypt to bring the people out and into the wilderness. It seems that God wants to humble us before using us to accomplish things for his glory. And so here we will see that Joshua, by God's good providence, will be given a front row seat to behold the glory of God. And how this would no doubt transform Joshua's thinking about who God was and about his confidence and strength in him. So if you're in Exodus 24, look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Stop there for a moment. So here God is calling up Moses to the mountain to meet with him. And, and, and on this mountain, God would reveal his glory. He would give to Moses the law and, and the tablets. And it, it would be an amazing picture as God would communicate and reveal of, of himself. Now jump down to verse 9. Verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he, that is God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now you say, what does that mean? What what are we supposed to learn from that sentence? You should stand amazed at the fact that God allowed sinful men to see this picture of his glory and of his holiness. The fact is, they saw it and they weren't destroyed. 
They ate and drank and they weren't consumed. They, they consumed. God didn't consume them. And they were able to behold something of his glory. Read on. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us, meaning Moses and Joshua, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days. And 40 nights. And Joshua got to be witness to these things. Can you imagine the impact that this would have on Joshua as he would remain in somewhat of a close proximity to Moses? And we know that that's the case because later on in chapter 32, we see that Moses and Joshua have a conversation as they come down off of the mountain. So Joshua remained there in some kind of close proximity to see and to witness and to behold the glory of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God. And again, what an impact this must have had upon Joshua. Now, you may hear that and say, good for Joshua. Good for Joshua. So glad that he could experience and could see a vision of the glory of God. I'm glad that that could move and work in his heart and life. But what about me? How am I, living here in Indiana, supposed to see the glory of God? How do I witness and behold the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God? How do I, how do I think about these things? That's a, that's a great question. Where do we turn to see the glory of God, to see the majesty of his power, his holiness, his love, his grace. You say, certainly creation. We look at creation and we see his power and his strength and, and, and his eternality. And that preaches to us about the might of God and the power of God. It, it absolutely does. But where do we look to understand the grace of God? the love of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Where do we look? Simply put, we look to the cross. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to the gospel to see the power of God's love and his grace. It was Paul who would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I love these verses so much. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, and it is a treasure. The gospel is a treasure to know and to see Christ. It is a treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
we witness the glory of God's love and His grace in Jesus Christ as we see our sins removed, as we see that we are clothed in His righteousness and made clean and acceptable before Him as we now walk with our risen Savior each and every day. And this is why Paul could then write just a few verses later in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. By faith, we look back to see what Christ has done on our behalf at the cross. By faith, we look forward to see what Jesus will do in fulfilling all of His good and precious promises to us. And for today, in this moment, Paul says, we do not lose heart because His grace is sufficient now. His presence is with us today. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit currently. It is a pledge. We are sealed with the Spirit as a promise that God will fulfill and do all the things that He has promised. So yes, Joshua, as the servant of Moses, got to be a witness to the glory of God and this moved him to love and to worship and to faith and to confidence in God. But brothers and sisters, for us, through the power of the gospel, through the work of Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we too are witnesses of the glory of God. We too behold the, the glory of God's love and grace and, and holiness. Let us rejoice in that precious truth. Now, before we close, one last point, and then I promise we're done. Lastly, number five, noted on your outline, before he was Joshua the general, he was a spy. He was a spy who boldly testified to the goodness and power of God. Turn back now to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, we'll look at verses 5 to 10. As you'll recall the scene, the the situation, 12 spies were originally sent into the promised land to observe the land and to report back. Shockingly enough, 10 of the 12 spies, even after seeing the plagues, that God had brought against Egypt, even after seeing God split the Red Sea, even after God had made His presence known through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, ten of the twelve spies came back and brought a bad report, saying that they could never conquer the promised land, that the nation of Israel should never even enter into the promised land because they would never be able to take it and to claim the inheritance for themselves. Only two spies, Caleb and Joshua, spoke the truth. They spoke words of wisdom to the people, but sadly, the nation of Israel listened to the majority They listened to the ten spies. They refused to enter into the promised land. In fact, it's even worse than that. They talked about appointing a new leader to lead them back to Egypt, to go back to slavery, to go back to bondage. If you're in Numbers chapter 14, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Moses and Aaron 
fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, to a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. (laughs) What a scene! Why? Why didn't Joshua fear like the other spies? Why didn't he join them in their cowardly report? Why didn't Joshua and Caleb, for that matter, and Moses and Aaron, why didn't they want to go back to Egypt? believe that God's grace had changed Joshua's heart. God had done a work in Joshua's mind, in Joshua's life. He had been moved to faith and to worship by what he knew to be true of God. He had seen the work of God and God had opened his eyes to behold his glory. Joshua had been a slave in Egypt and he had seen the freedom and redemption that is available in God. Joshua had been a soldier and he had learned that dependence upon God is victory. Joshua had been a servant to Moses and he had seen the glory of God and so he feared God more than anyone or anything else. See, Joshua knew what God could do to those giants in the land. Joshua knew what God would do to those giants in the land. When others saw giants, Joshua saw God, and that makes all the difference in the world. Please note this on your outline. Joshua was not afraid to be in the minority when that minority included God. And how we need to learn this lesson. Because as you know, there, there's so much talk today about quote-unquote being on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be worried about being on the wrong side of history. We should worry. We should be worried about being on the wrong side of God. We should be worried about walking with Him in love and faithfulness. You know, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, he wrote, For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. I think that Joshua had a, had a similar heartbeat as he was entrusting himself to God, his Savior. And, 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 and he saw that his gain. He saw that as gain, to side with God, to walk with God, to declare the glory and the goodness of God. He saw that as gain, listen, even if it cost him his life, his popularity, his reputation with, with the people around him. As we close this morning, I, I want to ask you just a few questions. Brothers and sisters, what is it that frightens you today? What is it that causes you to consider throwing in the towel and going back? Going back, running back, retreating to some past 
pet sin that tempts you, that allures you, that promises you something, where is it that you are tempted to go silent, to act in a cowardly way, to act in a loveless, self-centered way? Could it be that today God is calling you to declare your trust, your allegiance, your love to him? And to him alone, brothers and sisters, we need more men and women who truly fear and reverence God, who stand amazed at his glory. We need more men and women who encourage others, who call others to faith and trust in God and to walk with him. We need more men and women who really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Today, Today, as we walk out of this place, today you can speak and live and love as one who has been set free. As one who is absolutely safe and secure in God because of Christ. As It is God who has redeemed you. It is God who has died for you. And Christ has arisen from the grave and he has called you to himself. It is God who calls you to walk with him and to treasure him and to treasure his will and his desires even above your own. God changed Joshua's identity. God rescued Joshua out of slavery. God revealed his glory to Joshua. God proved time and time again to Joshua that he is trustworthy and he is good. Joshua had been given so much. You have been given so much. What will you do with what God has entrusted to you? You've been given so much. Brothers and sisters, it's time that we put cowardice to death. It is time that we live like who we really are in Christ. It's time that we live like who we really are in Christ. Who are we? We are freely loved and accepted in Christ. We are redeemed children of God. We are those who have all the promises of God as yes and amen in Christ fulfilled to us. Let us walk and live courageously and boldly for the glory of God. Let us us live like who we truly are. And then next week, Lord willing, we will begin chapter 1, verse 1. Let's pray. Gracious Father, God, as we have considered your word and your truth this morning, as we have looked into how you moved and worked in Joshua's life, Father, we we pray, please, please remove from our eyes the blinders that we have. And we all have blinders. We have areas where we don't see clearly, where we don't see you clearly or your will clearly. We don't see ourselves clearly. So we pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom into these things. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk boldly and yet humbly with you. Help us to put cowardice and fear to death that we might represent you well in a, in a culture, in a society that needs to see and to know the truth about you, about your love, about your grace, about your wrath, about the forgiveness and life that is available in Christ. Father, please use us as faithful ambassadors for you. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.